Let's just take a minute and pray. Father, you are awesome. You are holy. You're righteous, good, wise, loving, giving. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your son. Thank you for our families. Thank you for this church family. Thank you for freedom. Thank you for Thank you for prosperity. Thank you for food, Lord. Thank you also for trials that you give us. Teach us to um, bow our hearts before them and listen and lean into them. Father, I pray that our hearts would be soft before you this morning, before your word. We would see the amazing picture that Ezra is painting of the nation of Israel at their peak. In First Chronicles, help us to understand what we can take from that. In Jesus' name, amen. So our biblical review series, First Chronicles, I'm hoping that this graphic is familiar to you now. The purpose of our whirlwind tour through Scripture is to understand the purpose of Scripture, increase our biblical literacy, and understand the purpose of Scripture, which is to reveal God and point to Jesus, and understand our purpose in response to Scripture, which is to increase our biblical literacy and then respond in faith and obey. I hope that you're tracking along with us as we're, as we're going through this. Obviously, it would be maybe difficult, depending on your, your devotional schedule, to read an entire book in a week. I don't know what that looks like for you. I hope that you're taking some time during these, during these sessions to take a look at these books, either in advance or afterwards, to look, dig into the notes and the thoughts and the insights and application points that the teaching team is bringing to you. It's really good stuff. My question is, and with any sermon, are you finding a nugget to obey when you walk away from each time? I hope that you will. I hope that I'm presenting something. I hope that each of us are presenting something for you to obey every time you come here. And even if we don't do a good job on that, the Holy Spirit can still speak to your heart. And he can still say, whoever you are, Tim, Madeline, Richard, listen to me. I'm speaking to you. And his entire word can speak to you. So listen to him and find something to obey. Let's take a look at 1 Chronicles as an overview here. This is a timeline kind of chopped up. 1 Chronicles spans everything from creation to the time of the exile in Babylon. The author is thought to be Ezra, the priest who has his own book. And if you were to read 1 Chronicles through Ezra, you'd see a remarkable continuity of theme and writing style and even in the timeline that's... uh, that's presented there. It shows the rise and fall. Chronicles shows the rise and fall of the Jewish nation. It provides highlights of David's reign and paints a picture of Israel at its peak, which we're going to talk a little bit more about that. And if you notice, Ezra was writing about 450 BC, which is the fourth century BC, and it was about 400 years after David lived. 400 years. What was happening 400 years around here? 400 years ago around here. I don't know, was there, I mean, Native Americans walking around? Was there any maybe wooden huts? 400 years ago was the peak of Israel, and and Ezra's writing about that uh, with great authority. Next timeline. This is an overlap of these historical books. In the original text, don't forget the historical books are one book each, Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. On a superficial glance, when you look at it, these books, it's like Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles. It feels like there's a lot of overlap feels like there's a lot of repetition and there is some things but just one thing to keep in mind Samuel and Kings are historical narratives written by contemporaries the people who lived through the events Chronicles is a retrospective written by Ezra the priest who was a captive in Babylon Chronicles is more selective in its content because Ezra has a different purpose 
than Samuel, Nathan, and Gad, who were writing Samuel and Kings. So there's, I, this chart here shows the, the, the overlap between Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. And you see that Chronicles goes all the way from creation to comfortably into the exile. The structure of First Chronicles, okay, so here's the outline of First Chronicles, four sections, genealogies and histories, chapters 1 through 10, highlights of David's reign up to chapter 21, an org chart of David's kingdom at, at its peak when he hands it over to Solomon up to chapter 27, and then David's commissioning of Solomon as king and, and basically transferring the kingship from himself over to his son. This book concludes with a snapshot of Israel's peak, the accession of Solomon. And Ezra had an eye for detail. He's a priest. He's a historian. And he is, along with many others that were in captivity, a Jewish patriot. And he's painting a picture of what God has done and, what the Jewish, and to show the Jewish people they are not forgotten. You know, this is remarkable considering the, what he was able to capture, the spirit of what he was able to do is remarkable considering how long Israel had been in captivity. How long, the captivity started 150 years before, 200 years before with the, with the banishment of the northern tribes. And here is a man over 100 years later writing with great faith and great passion and great precision about what God has done with his nation in the past. And what God, and then looking forward, as we're going to see, to what God was going to do in the future. So keep that in mind. If I'm writing about something that happened 100 years ago, and 100 years ago in 1923, it was the Roaring Twenties, lots of stereotypes about that, I could not write with any great precision on that. I think Warren Harding was the president at that point. I can't remember many other details besides that, maybe Prohibition. But it's like all these things sound like ancient history to us, and they are. They sound like they're irrelevant to us, and sometimes they are. But this is a man who's looking back 100-plus years with great precision, great faith, and great purpose for his nation. Okay, let's take a look at the first section, which is the genealogies. This is a history back to Adam. It's a detailed history and listing of the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. So, history back to Adam, chapters 1 through 10, detailed history of the 12 tribes, a detailed history of David's descendants, and a list of those who returned from captivity. Not everybody, of course, this, the leaders. And then a brief, brief recap of King Saul, which Pastor David did a great job talking about and illustrating that. You know, if you're an average Jew, and this time in your history, it's a real low point. There are a few Jewish survivors that are in Jerusalem, in the vicinity around Jerusalem, they went back before Ezra did, and they were living in Jerusalem. It's kind of sad. They went back under um, the descendant of the last king. His name was Zerubbabel, but there weren't many people there, and it was a pretty sad time. But there's a large population of Jews in Babylon, and this is who Ezra is writing to. He took the task of remembering Israel's history and God's promises. And speaking of promises... And it was a low point. There, this low point was not unexpected. So I just want to list as a kind of a summary and tying these books together a little bit. I just want to list these verses. I'm not going to take the time to read them all. But these are some of the verses throughout these historical books where God has warned Israel what's going to happen. First Samuel 12, 25, Samuel warned the people, you got your king. It not, maybe not be as what you, what you expected. And if you disobey, you're going to pay the price. And in 2 Samuel 7, 14, David, the same thing. If you follow the Lord, he's going to be faithful. If you walk away from him, you're going to pay the price. 
And then Ezra points out in 1 Chronicles 5, 26, Israel, the northern kingdom, was taken into captivity because they walked away from the Lord. And in 1 Chronicles 9, 1, Judah was taken into captivity because they walked away from the Lord. And thankfully, the good news is, Ezra writes, if you, again, this is part of the continuity between Chronicles and Ezra. Ezra writes in, in the first chapter, first couple of verses, the remnant is being restored because God is faithful. Warning, success, failure, consequence, God's faithfulness. It all ties together in these books. So the genealogies, you know, let's focus on this third point for just a minute. The detailed history of David's descendants. You know, we joke around sometimes about the tediousness of the lists and the genealogies in the Old Testament. They are history in ancient detail, yes. But, you know, they're more than that. There really are more than that. These genealogies, these lists, they are a statement of faith. They are a statement of faith written by a man, Ezra, who's lived his entire life in captivity. Generations before him have been in captivity. And they are a statement of faith by this man. Let's take a look at them here quickly. These, two, these are two gene, genealogies, one laid out by Ezra and one by Matthew, in the first chapter of Matthew. In this, Jeconiah is the last king, one, one of the last kings of, um, of Judah. His son was Shealtiel. His son was Pediah. His son was Zerubbabel, who returned. His son was Hananiah. And Matthew lays out Jeconiah, Shealtiel, Zerubbabel. Abuid. So, quick note, I'm putting these side by side for a comparison, not trying to make any doctrinal statements. These, obviously, these genealogies diverge after Zerubbabel. It could be for several reasons, and this is something where we need, as, as we are thinking through Scripture, we need to understand a couple of things. Ancient Jewish historical convi- conventions are different than modern historical conventions. Sometimes names are skipped in genealogies here and other places because they're emphasizing certain key persons. And Matthew, obviously, writing 400 years, more than 400 years, maybe 500 years after, after Ezra, he had more recent information than Ezra. He knew exactly who Jesus' ancestors were. The point here is these, both of these men were tracking the descendants of King David. Tracking the descendants of King David. So what was, what was that last gentleman's name? Hananiah is the father of Pelatiah. Who's the father of Shechaniah? Who's the father of Shemaiah? Who's the father of Neriah? Who's the father of Elioeniah? Okay, I've always wanted to just find a way to work these genealogies into a sermon. Ezra brings this list forward. He's bringing this forward into his generation. He brings it to fourth century Babylon. Matthew brings it list to first century Palestine. See who he had. Eliud, the father of Eleazar, is the father of Matan, is the father of Jacob, is the father of Joseph, who had the privilege of raising Jesus as his son. You know, I used to think that genealogies were about looking backwards and counting things. And Ezra's a pretty nerdy guy. He likes to count things. He's good at it. Nerds are good at counting things. He's good at this. And it's true. These genealogies do look backwards. But my appreciation of the backwards look changed when one verse here in 1 Chronicles caught my imagination. 1 Chronicles chapter 4 verse 21. And the records are ancient. 
and the records are ancient. I just paused as I thought, what does that even mean to someone who's writing 24, 2,500 years ago? Let me show you something here. We got a little bit of a show and tell this morning. This is a World War II era infantry helmet. About 15 or 20 years ago, some of my relatives were cleaning out their things. Probably the people that I got my cleaning jeans from in ancient history. And they, they sent me this box. And this is my grandfather's helmet that he wore in training. My grandfather was killed in 1944 in Operation Dragoon during the invasion of southern France. This is the helmet he wore when he was, when he was training. Not expected. Very much appreciated. This helmet is, depending on when it was manufactured, it's probably 75 to 80 years old, maybe, maybe older. This seems really old to me. I asked some folks here in the congregation um, over the past week if they wanted to share things that are really old to them. So does anybody else have anything that they'd like to share or show? You don't have to make a speech, but you can just stand up and show us what it is and tell us really quickly what it is. Okay, that's awesome. What is, what is, what's that? Washboard. It's a washboard. Is this a family thing or is this something that you, that's special to you? My grandparents. Just Your grandparents? That's amazing. That's amazing. So approximately how old do you think that might be? Well, I was born in 40, 1940. This is probably over 100 years old. Yeah. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. What else do we have here? Someone else bring something they'd like to share? Richard? What do you have, brother? I bought a book titled China First 100. First 100. Cover the period of 1872 to 1881. Educational mission students came to the United States. My great, great, great grandfather, his name is Wu Yangzhen, he taught me this book. Wow. <laughs> wow, you're sitting on a, you're sitting on a, and you're, this is a great, great, great grandfather, so that would put him well back into the 19th century, is that correct? So 150 years old, maybe? So 75 years old, 100 years old, 150 years old, these things seem ancient to us, seem ancient to me anyway, of course, I, and I seem ancient to my children, I'm sure. So my question for you is, do you have something at your house that's old? Something that connects you to your roots? You've seen us share some, some mild things. Some of you may have things that go back even further. Some of you research your genealogies, and they go back hundreds or even thousands of years. So what do you think of as ancients? Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, Ezra wrote these words, the records are ancient. He wrote them in four. 50 B.C., almost 2,500 years ago. What did ancient mean to Ezra? What did ancient mean to Ezra? What was he looking at when he said that? Was he holding a scroll in his, in his hand that was centuries or millennia old? Was he holding written records that date back to Moses or Abraham or even Adam? It must have been amazing. And I'm making this point 
I'm making this point so we understand the utter reliability and antiquity and solidity of our faith and of the word of God. It is reliable. The records are ancient. Ezra's statement of faith was that he was saying he trusted his ancient sources. He could look back to Adam. Matthew could look back to Ezra. And like Ezra and Matthew, we look back. We trust our sources. Our faith is ancient. Your faith is based on ancient truths. Your faith is well documented. Your faith is solid. The scriptures are solid and utterly dependable. Take heart in that. Take heart in that. But you know what? I realized something else as well. Ezra was not only looking backwards and marveling, although he was definitely marveling, saying, what am I, look at what I'm holding here. What are the points of these genealogies? What are the points of them? What is he, what is he saying? They are documentation of David's heirs pointing to the future Messiah. So not only was Ezra looking backwards to ancient records, he was looking forward to, to God's Messiah. And, he, and Ezra may not be able to articulate that in those words. He was looking for a king. And Matthew at first was looking for a king. But Matthew, by the time he wrote his list, he knew that he, that king was also the Messiah come to earth. These are lists, are st- Ezra's statement of faith saying, thank you, God, for our history. And I believe that you will fulfill your promise. That's why I'm listing all these people so I can tell them who David's descendants are. By faith, Ezra saw that the genealogies point to David's heir. And he, even though he didn't see the end result himself, Matthew saw the end result and he documented it. And again, we're able to place our faith in ancient, trustworthy sources. Next section, highlights of David's life. This, this book is not in chronological order. It's, it goes through this history, it goes through the genealogies, and it skips all the way back four or 500 years previously to the life of David. Some of the highlights of the life of David. You'll notice if you read carefully, Chronicles is not the same as Samuel. It highlights David's victories and the lessons he's learned. Of course, it's not just a whitewash. He covers some of David's failures. It shows that David established, he desired to build the temple, and he established the success of Solomon's reign. He set the stage for what was going to come for his own descendants. So what are some of the common threads here? Um, I want to I focus on, some. Of this, is, this, this section is on David's life. Some of the big pictures, lessons learned that David pulled from over the course of his life. And the, again, we won't take time to read all these verses, but I'm going to pick a couple of episodes here. One, again, it talks, Chronicles goes through David moving the ark. It also goes through David's desire to build the temple. And it, and it goes through his, the, his sinful decision to conduct the census. We also can't forget Bathsheba. It's not covered in this book, but we also know that's, that's something he learned from. So let's, I just want to pause for a second here. I have some points. I have some lessons that David learned. I'd like to get a little interaction here. Somebody that shout out from the, from the congregation. What is, when David was moving the ark, what was one of the lessons that he learned? Respect. Say, respect, yes. Don't touch it. Don't touch it. 
That's right. And that sounds remarkably like the lesson Pastor Dave talked about this morning, too. Did David, did King David follow Simon Says? Amen. Amen. Simon did not say, put the ark on a cart and let the oxen pull it willy-nilly. Good. Next, building the temple. He said, I want to build the temple. Nathan, his prophet, said, go for it. And then he walked out of the door, and then God said, Nathan, wait a second. Don't do that yet. That's not David's, that's not David's job for me. What lesson did David learn there? Guesses, Stephen. God said, right, he said, I don't need you. And so he cooperated with that. Thankfully, he didn't force that through, which is good. Yes. That's right. Very good, Michael. Excellent. Great answer. God will build a temple for his family. God will build a temple. I'll do that. Exactly. Thank you. Excellent. And then last but not least, conducting the census, end of his life, you think he'd screwed up enough. He didn't. And he had Joab, of all people, correcting him, saying, don't do this. Look, if Joab's telling you you're making a mistake, you're really kind of off base. Because Joab was not a nice guy. What was the lesson he, David learned from conducting the census? Trust God, not numbers. Yes. Excellent. Good answers. Excellent answers. Some of the response, I would feel free to write any of those answers down in your blank. Some of the things that I came up with was David moving the ark. The lesson he learned is he accepted correction. He accepted correction when he did something wrong. David building the temple, he accepted instruction. You know the difference between accepting correction and accepting uh, construction or instruction? You know the difference? John Luke, what's the difference? I'm just kidding. I'm just putting you on the spot. The difference is sometimes a lot of pain and a lot of money. If you are willing to accept instruction, do it this way, and then you do it that way, and it works, yay, everyone's happy. And you say, someone says, do it this way, you say, shut up, I'll do it my way, and then you destroy something and have to start over from scratch. That's painful. David not only accepted instruct correction, he also accepted instruction. And when God said, back off, he backed off and set the stage for Solomon's success. And then last but not least, when the census, again, he repented quickly, and then he trusted God's mercy. He said, don't let me fall into the hands of man. Let me fall into the hands of God. Because God is merciful, a life lived, an old man at this time, many, many, many screw-ups at this time. And he still said in his old age, God is merciful. God is merciful. Can we say God is merciful when we've been facing Trial after trial, disappointment after disappointment. We should imitate David's faith in that. And this is why the, these responses of David, and not to mention his response with Bathsheba, his wholehearted, his wholehearted repentance, his immediate turning around, his grieving, his standing back up, this is why, in spite of his sin, David was considered a man after God's own heart. As you read through these historical books, you will see such a dramatic difference between David and all the other kings, even his son Solomon in many respects. David just battered throughout his life, battered throughout his life. A man of great enthusiasm, a man of great failure. And at the end of his life, he's praising God, learning 
lessons, displaying a soft heart. That's why he is God's man. That's why he's a man after God's own heart. That's why it's such a privilege to be able to talk about him as part of these historical books. So what do we learn from this? Just pause for a moment, look for a point of application. What are you struggling with? What areas do you and I need to accept correction where I'm on the wrong path, I'm walking down the wrong way, and I need to change? I need to, I need to, I need to stop doing what I'm doing and change. I hope that there's something that you're listening to because each one of us has faults and failures and struggles. This could be the nugget that you walk away from, this, this message from. Or what is it you're, you need instruction on? Are you considering something big and serious? Or maybe, maybe not so big. But you're like, I'm going to start something new. I'm going to do something different. Are you willing to receive instruction? Are you willing to seek the Lord? Are you willing to ask godly men? David asked a godly man, this is what I'm going to do. Nathan said, do it. And then God said, don't. And then David didn't do it. He accepted instruction. Are you willing to accept instruction when you're on the front end of something important? You will save yourself lots of pain. It's for all of us, of course. It's especially true for younger folks. And it's many of the things, these are many of the things that our parents, us as parents, are trying to communicate to you. And sometimes we do it poorly. And sometimes we don't have the right tone of voice. Or we have our own screw-ups that make us look like hypocrites. And sometimes we have lots of good successes, too. Things that we've learned or done well or take people's advice that we've taken advantage of. Young people, listen. 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 All you young people, listen. We love you. We love you so much. Parents love you so much. Your family loves you so much. Listen. We want to help. We have, we have some things to offer. And on the, on the times when we're not you know the ultimate authority comes from him. Our heart is to pass on his love, his truth, his wisdom to you so that you can benefit. And then last but not least, if you sin, are you quick to repent? Are you quick to say, Lord, okay, you said don't do this, I did this, I screwed up, I'm wrong. Are you quick to listen, are you quick to confess your sins? Ask for forgiveness. And then trust in the forgiveness that God offers. David knew that God was merciful. He didn't know the full plan of it. We know that God is merciful through his son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, paid the price for my sins, for your sins. That's why we know God's mercy. It's the ultimate provision, one time for all. God is merciful in spite of our sins. Correction, instruction, mercy. This is what made David so special. Orc chart of David's kingdom. We won't spend a, lot, a whole, whole lot of time here. Ezra returns to his uh, nerdish roots and gives us more lists, more and more lists. Six chapters of lists. Priests, musicians, gatekeepers, treasurers, officers and judges, military commanders, princes of the 12 tribes, keepers of the royal palace, and David's close counselors. This is a snapshot of David's kingdom at its height as he's about ready to hand it over to Solomon. David's well-organized kingdom that's built according to God's instructions. Especially careful detail given to all the priestly responsibilities. His well-organized kingdom built according to God's instructions. Simon says, 
And David says, yes, Lord, I finally learned my lesson. No sermon through the Old Testament is complete without a discussion of the scarlet thread. I encourage you to take some time and do some study on this in 1 Chronicles and Hebrews. One of the reasons David could be, couldn't build the temple is God said, you are a man of bloodshed. Your son will be a man of peace. It says in 1 Chronicles 22, 9, but the word of the Lord came to me, David speaking, saying, you've shed much blood and waged great wars. You shall not build a house for my name because you have shed so much blood on the earth before me. Behold, a son will be born to you who shall be a man of rest. That's Solomon. And I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side for his name will be Solomon. Behold, a son will be born to you. He shall be a man of rest. That sounds like something from the Gospels. That sounds like something from Isaiah. Behold, a son will be born to you. This is David speaking. And then jumping over to Hebrews 4, 6. Paul writing again, For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. Consequently, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. David's bloodshed quickly. David's bloodshed represents the old covenant with its bloody sacrifices. David sets the stage for Solomon. God said Solomon's reign will be restful. Solomon would be a man of rest. And God said that Christ's final sacrifice allows us to enter into rest. It all ties together. It all builds to the crescendo of Christ. David, bloodshed, old old covenant, Solomon, rest, new covenants. Sacrificial system, old covenants. Jesus allows us to enter into rest. Because we're no longer trusting our works. We're trusting his righteousness and his forgiveness. It all ties together. David's commissioning of his son Solomon, the last section, chapters 28 and 29. David compiles an immense stockpile of materials. He worships God publicly. He challenges Solomon, follow God, love God, listen to what I'm telling you. And then he establishes Solomon in a very strong place and hands the kingdom over to him in complete peace. Ezra documents Israel. These chapters show Ezra documenting Israel at the height of its health. When I say health, it would grow more powerful under Solomon. But I would like to say to you that Israel was never more godly, never more healthy than when David handed the kingdom over to Solomon. This was the point where David is publicly worshiping the God, publicly showing what he's learned from his failures, publicly challenging his sons to follow the Lord, his son to follow the Lord. This was Israel's healthiest and most devoted, even though it would have momentum after this and grow more rich and more powerful militarily. As you read through these historical narratives, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, and others to come, take time to appreciate these nuances, these character studies. The men, who, the men and women who, said, who listened to Simon Says and those who didn't. Those who didn't and then repented, and those who repented and then received forgiveness and restoration into God's family. Assure yourself, as Ezra did, our faith is well-established. Well-established. Imitate Ezra's faith in that without hindsight, he was able to look forward that God would restore Israel and looking forward to David's heir on the throne. Imitate David's faith by learning, repenting, and trusting God to do what he said he would do. He will have mercy on you no matter what you've done if you come to him.
confess your faith in Jesus' heir, Jesus Christ. And David's heir, who's Jesus Christ. Jesus. Jesus, you are the risen Savior. Lord, you are our rest. How our hearts are informed, established, challenged. How we marvel at the antiquity of the truth, the solidity, the faith of men and women who looked to you and looked down the centuries. Thank you for these men and women, Lord, that ah, love you enough to document this truth, knowing that others would rely on it. Lord, I rely on this. I rely on this truth to change my life. And I pray that each one of us hearing your word today we would rely on your truth to change our life. In Jesus' name, amen.